If you would be turning to Daniel chapter 2, we're continuing our series in the book of Daniel. Um, just want to catch us up to, to where we are and remind us of a couple things so that we can uh, keep, keep Daniel rightly in perspective. Um, remember from last week that, that one of the things that we said we want to make sure we understood about the book of Daniel, this is not about us coming up with some sort of moral example. It's not that we want to dare to be a Daniel or that we, we, we want to try to emulate his behavior because you can't do it without his foundation. Right? It's very important that we understand that. You cannot do the kind of things that Daniel is going to do in the book of Daniel as he suffers in exile for 70 years. He never goes home. He dies in Babylon. You cannot do that without the foundation that he has, which is firmly laid by the promises and sovereignty of God. That's critical for us throughout this series. You've got to keep coming back to that because we try to drift from that, right? Because we, we like, we prefer, myself included, give me a short checklist. Let me, that makes me feel like I'm accomplishing some things. It makes me feel like I'm, I'm making some progress. It makes me feel like I'm doing some things. I'm a huge checklist guy. I have this little orange journal. Uh, I bullet journal. Uh, and, uh, and it's, it's become very, yeah, stop it, Joe. Uh, and, uh, and I am unashamed in so doing. And it's one of the things that's really helped me to try to get my act together. And you know what I've discovered? I still don't have my act together. Somehow, some way, I still, even with this little orange journal that's supposed to help me, I still don't have my act together. I still discover things that, that we, we get sideways and we get wrong. And I think it's God's grace, actually, uh, because I would begin to believe in my capabilities and my ability to organize things and make it all work. I would begin to believe in my sovereignty quickly. It wouldn't take me long at all to begin to appreciate just how wonderful I am. Well, the Lord is so gracious in preventing that from happening at almost every turn. He doesn't give me a whole lot of space for that, and I'm thankful for that. And he keeps pulling me back to the one true foundation, which is the finished person and work of Christ, which is the greatest evidence of his love and promise-keeping to this world, and the fact that Christ is going to return. So I don't have to try to fix everything up between the now and the not yet. I don't have to make this work. He does. And that's really good news to me as a pastor who can't hardly keep his head on straight, it feels like sometimes. And I'm an empty nester. I don't even have kids at home anymore. I got zero excuses. I got the bullet journal. I don't have kids at home. There's no excuses for me. There's none. Um, but, but they're there. And so, so the beauty of Daniel is, is not that we would try to do what he does, but that we would look to the God and finisher and promise keeper and king that he does. And that that would drive our behavior, that that would actually be what drives how we think and how we function in the various places that we are because we're all under different circumstances, right? We're all in different situations. And that's sometimes the hard thing to appreciate about what is so miraculous about this gathering every Sunday morning is that we really are in a, a wide variety of places and how any of this lands on you is utter miracle. The spirit, we're not at work in this. This would be so twisted and silly, it wouldn't even make sense. And so what we, what we see from Daniel almost straight away is God's sovereignty. Remember, who is it that sends them into exile? It says God does. And it was according to the fact that he had warned them and he had warned them and he had warned them in grace. If you took the time to read Leviticus 26, you saw that he gave them about four or five steps before they would go into exile. 
And he showed them each time, this is my power, this is my glory, repent and live. And did they? No, they're in exile. They didn't. They didn't bother to listen. And now it'll cost them three or four generations of people, right? You, you do understand, 70 years in exile, if you're, if you're 16 above going into exile, are you coming home? If you're 40 and above going into 70 years of exile, are you coming home? 30 and above. 20? Maybe if you do the apple cider vinegar every morning. I don't know. 10? Maybe. Uh, five? Maybe. Now we're getting to some folks that may actually make it out. It's probably more, more people who are born in exile who will come in, come back into the land, having heard the stories of the God who held the promise. And remember, the whole book of Daniel really is uh, this, this explication of Jeremiah 29, when he says, go and build houses, and you're going to be here for a while, so you might as well get comfortable, but I know the plans I have for you. Maybe not you specifically, but for the future generations for your people. And this is also a very important thing for us to pick up on as we read the book of Daniel, is it's not just about Daniel, it's about really about what he's doing to lay the foundation for future generations. Something that, a way in which we don't really think very well. I know I don't. We're so caught up in the tyranny of the urgent that we don't think about how, we're, how what we're doing now is setting the table 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now for our family and for our church, right? How are we dealing with some of the mistakes that the church made in the 80s and 90s right now? In the 60s and 70s? 40s and 50s? Civil war? Are we not wrestling with some of those topics right now today? We are. Those decisions that were made then affect us right now. So the question becomes, what kind of decisions are we making right now as, as husbands, as wives, as, as fathers, as mothers, as children, as college students, as church folk? What kind of decisions are we making right now that will have an impact on the church in the future? Right? And so we don't need to be, we, what keeps us from being arrogant about that is the fact that the Lord said he would always provide a remnant. He would always make sure that his name would be known. And we have the freedom to be able to make that known in a beautiful and a glorious way. So what are we doing? Notice Daniel is doing it with little to no reward in the immediate. He's in exile. And yet the Lord gives him favor and he gives his friends favor. And he, he, if you remember, they were 10 times smarter, not just than the other folks who were exiles like them, but than the actual wise men who'd been in Chaldea forever. They were 10 times smarter than even them. And remember, they, they actually read Babylonian literature. They weren't afraid to step inside the story of the Babylonians to show where God had been faithful even in Babylon even though they chose to, at times, sacrifice their children to a foreign god and do all kind of weird stuff. He loved them too. So there's a lot that we learn from chapter 1, and as we step into chapter 2, what we need to know is that this is a continuation of the story, and it's taking place mm, arguably between two and three years after, right? Even though what we're going to read, it says it's the second year of Nebuchadnezzar. There is a possibility that it's actually a third, toward the end of the third year, because Nebuchadnezzar's first year, he actually jointly served with his father. And so it's all a matter of how you want to count 
days, doesn't matter to us, doesn't change the meaning of the story. The only thing it may have an implication on is whether or not Daniel and his friends were finished with their training. Either way, they don't get called up. So we'll talk a little bit about why that might matter. But before we step into that, let me ask you a question. And I want you to also keep in mind the question from last week, which is how do your circumstances affect how you live? Right? That's from last week. Because that's a, and that's a major question. We are so blown to and fro by our circumstances, right? Everything, for some of us, everything has to be, for those of you who are more emotive, which I am numbered among you, everything has to just be right. There's so much that goes into whether or not you think something is good or bad or there's worship or there's not worship. It's all about feeling and all that kind of stuff, right? I, I'm, I'm there. I, I wrestle with that. My wife can tell you I really deeply wrestle with that. And for others of you, it's, 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 different. it's a different experience. And so it's very difficult for us sometimes to know what exactly has taken place because circumstances have such a profound impact, which is why we've got to have a plumb line. There has to be an anchor somewhere. There has to be a foundation, right? And that foundation is the promises and the goodness of our God who loves us. Like regardless of whether you're emotive or not emotive, that's what we all have to come back to. That's, that's true north. It's good for us to have true north, right? Otherwise, we're just running all over the globe. So that true north is God himself. The God who came in flesh was Christ and saved us himself. He didn't leave it to someone else. So the question we have for this week is, who do you trust the most? Who do you trust the most and why do you trust them, right? How many of you, the first time you meet somebody, you're like, all right, I can tell. I try, I'm going to give you my social security number, right? I'm going to give you my bank number because somebody's got to have this information. If anything happens to me and I trust you, I think you're going you're to make sure everything's okay. How many of you, first time you meet somebody, you just spill all your guts? Well, I kind of do that. I'm not sure it's wise, by the way. Um, and so, so how, how, many of you, how many of you have someone you, at all you could say you trust? Because if you're like me, you have huge, one of the reasons I spill my guts is because I don't trust you anyway. I don't trust anybody left to my own devices. I've been burned too many times by people who said they love me, much less somebody who just met me, much less somebody who's known me for a year and it's all utilitarian, right? So, it's, so who do you trust and why? Because that's really important. And most of us, if we have somebody that we actually genuinely trust, the reason we trust them is why? Because they've kept their promises. They are who they say they are. They actually come through. If they say they're going to be there, they're there. For those who are not, slowly but surely, we whittle them out of our lives, don't we? Right? It's just what we do. If you are untrustworthy, you will find yourself slowly but surely whittled out of people's lives because they just, we just don't have any use for that kind of stuff. And yet, when we're accused of being untrustworthy, we have excuses, right? Every time I've been untrustworthy, I got all kinds of excuses. I, I mean, I got, I got some sitting in the bank that I, I keep like in a safety deposit box I need to pull out if it's tough. But do excuses make the difference? Do excuses matter to those who've, been, who've had their trust violated? No. So who we trust is very important. And so again, who we ought to trust most is whom? God the Father, because he's done what he said he would do. Again and again and again and again. 
Now, just because you prayed it doesn't mean he's obligated to do it. For those of you who really wrestle with, man, I've been praying about this for, for years and God won't take it. Well, remember, Paul did the same thing with the thorn in the flesh, right? And what did God say to him? And probably what feels like one of the heaviest verses in all the Bible, he says, Paul, when you're weak, that's when I am strong. You need that thorn in your flesh. Though we cry out over and over again, that doesn't mean he's not keeping his promises because he never promised, actually, that you'd be happy in a fallen world. He never promised that. Just so we, let's clear that off the deck, right? You can't imagine that Daniel's like, this, this is awesome. I get threatened to be killed periodically. It's amazing. I, I don't get to worship out in the open like I'd really like to because I could get killed. Like, this is great. It's simpler. Jail is so much simpler than the normal population. No, it's not. It's just not. And so it's really, really important that we recognize that God's promises, that, that which he keeps is what, what he has said in his word, that he would redeem his people, that he would always give a witness. In fact, uh, one of the classes that helped me understand the sovereignty of God the greatest was not a theology class, but was church history. You study church history at all. I have no earthly idea why you're gathered here this morning. I have no idea why I get paid to do what I do, given what the church has done over time, right? If it made it through the 13th and 14th century in Europe, if it made it through the South in the 16th and 17th century, or 17th, 18th century rather, I don't know why anybody goes to church. Maybe it's because you just don't know any better. So be careful. If you're going to read, don't, don't go leaving. But it is an evidence of God's grace and his sovereignty. His promises he's kept, even though the church has failed miserably to keep the promises, it seems. And we as his people. So we have to wrestle with who do we trust and why? And do you trust God? And if you don't, why? What is it? Is it that you don't understand what his promises really are? Are you confused about what prayer really is? Are you confused about what the whole story is really about? So if you have trust issues with God, that's something that we need to work through in terms of discipleship. That's something you need to, you need to put forward, and it needs to make it to the front burner. Because none of this makes any sense if you don't trust it. So, having said that, as we step into this, this is a circumstance. It's a, a few years after that first chapter. And uh, what we're going to see is that God is the only true promise keeper and king to whom we should turn in prayer for what we need in a time of trouble instead of placing our hope in worldly religions, philosophies, and kingdom. kingdoms. Let me say it short. Our hope should be in God alone because of his, his grace alone that is manifested in Christ alone. Our hope should be in God alone, whose grace alone is manifested in Christ alone. Everything else will fail us. So for those of you who are wondering what's going to happen as far as this election is concerned, who knows, right? It's, it really is a toss-up. It may not be as bad as you think, and it may be worse than you think. But here's what will be true no matter what. God will continue to be sovereign. He will continue to make sure that his church is able to do what she's able to do, although it may look different than this. We may find out, like some other countries have, just who really wants to worship. Right? In China, uh, there was a, a story, and I think David Platt told it since he does secret church in China, so I'll accuse him of having said this. Um, it's not a bad thing, actually. One of the things he was asking uh, some of the folks who were part of the underground church, if someone was a Christian and they answered, we don't know yet. 
Why? Why do you not know? Well, that person hasn't been to prison yet. See, what you do is you find out if someone's really a Christian, if, the, if they're willing to go to jail for their faith. Now, you may say, well, that's, that's theological. Well, go to China and see what you think after that, right? Because this is where we find out where the, the weed is separated from the chaff oftentimes is suffering, right? Because we've often heard the statement that the church grows by the blood of the martyrs. We don't like that. Trust me, I don't like it either. I like what we're doing right here. I'm cool with this being easy and not worrying about somebody storming in and asking who really believes. I get it. This isn't Romania yet. And so I don't want to do that. But others have, and the church flourishes instead of languishing. This is Daniel's example. The reason she flourishes is because of the keeping of the promises of God. So let us step into the text. We'll read verses 1 through 13 as we learn about the troubling dreams of a murderous king. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came and they stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldean said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. Because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asked is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out. And the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. All right. So what we see here is this king is having not just one dream, but a series of dreams that have so troubled him that he can't sleep anymore, and he wants to know what it means. But he's wise enough to not tell them what the dream is or the dreams are. Instead, he wants to see if they truly are able to divine or know what it is that he's dreamed. So this is a test of sorts from Nebuchadnezzar. And notice he brings in who he brings in, enchanters and sorcerers and all these folks who practice 
pagan religious arts, if you will, or black arts, uh, in the sense of dark um, or pagan. And he is asking for them. They are Chaldeans, right? Notice who's not in this group. Daniel and his friends. Even though Daniel and his friends showed themselves to be ten times better, he doesn't call them in, right? Now, there's a few possibilities as to why he doesn't. One could be that maybe their training was not yet finished. That's a possibility. Or he didn't want those who were exiles, by virtue of what we know this dream is going to be later in the chapter, he didn't want them having hope that his kingdom would fall. So he doesn't bring them in because he doesn't want them beginning to kind of rabble-rouse. Or it's that he just doesn't trust, as it were, that that Daniel and his friends would give him an interpretation that will be satisfactory to him. Maybe he thinks that they may twist it. That, and in fact, has he seen their God move? He has. He's seen their God give them favor. And he's seen that the diet that Daniel and his friends did was actually better than what he had offered. So he's already tasted of their God pushing against him. So maybe he doesn't bring them in because he already begins to recognize the sovereignty of God at work. Either way, what he does is he brings in those he doesn't necessarily trust, as it turns out, because he's really pushing back against them. Notice he gets angry when they try to buy time, right? He, he calls them out for it. And, uh, and it's so fascinating to me. Haven't you done this? Have you ever tried to buy time when you knew you were caught up? See, what happened was, I, I, we, I had a, a niece one time. It was amazing. She, uh, they found some cigarettes, and she was about, what, 13, 14, right? And so there was this huge family council. She's taking a nap. So this is, there's a cruelty to this that even I recognize was probably more than necessary. But we were all gathered in the living room. And we, she she's, gets woken up and brought into the room. Like, she, it's not dawning on her. This is not a birthday party, right? This is not a celebration of you. Like, we're all gathered with long and, like, glum faces. And she, she sits down, and she's looking around, and it's starting to kind of track in. And so, so her grandmother, I think, is the one who speaks first and says, Natalie, where'd you get the cigarettes from? And Natalie, I don't know how, it felt like 30 minutes, but it wasn't. So this is exactly a quote of at least the beginning. Well, there was, and then the, you see what I'm, and then he, and then this, and then they were my purse. And so her granddad, who was a Marine pilot in Vietnam, leans in. I can't say exactly what he said because it's stronger than what a church service can contain. But he said, what in the world did you just say? And I said, I, I, I speak teenage jive. Um, and I interpreted, which was amazing. I think it was like one of those moments where like tongues were spoken. There was an interpreter. Uh, I, don't, don't quote me on that. <laughs> Strike that from the record. Um, and, uh, and so it was just this interesting moment where Natalie was just backpedaling trying to buy time. And I've done it. You've done it. We all do it when we're in a circumstance. We're just trying to buy enough ground to kind of see what, what's really going on. What's the angle that we can take to get out of this? This is what they're doing. And it's something we do as well. The king picks up on it. He is not having it. He is threatening to kill them. In fact, because of what they're doing, everybody's going to suffer now. Every, not even the, not, even the ones who have not been brought before him, I want all of the wise men dead. All of them. Destroy them all. He's angry. 
and you no longer trust them. And so notice how it keys in on, and so they went looking for Daniel and his friends. Guess who was going to die first? He had all these wise men in front of him. Why didn't he just wipe them out first? No, go looking for the exiles first. Their heads come off first. They're going to suffer for something that they didn't, they weren't even really responsible for, that they didn't even really do. So he goes looking for them. And so what we see is that these men, because of their inability to keep promises that they were trying to make or write or cash checks that, that they were trying to write, um, everybody ends up suffering. Now, there's something in that for us. See, when we don't keep our promises, others suffer, right? As, as, as believers, as, as those of us who make vows and do all these things, and this is not, I'm not going to, it's not going to be a beat up session on, on if you're taking membership vows, but it's just true. When you take membership vows at a church and you don't keep them, that church suffers. Regardless of what you may think and how you may think of it, trust me. When anybody takes their gift, when anybody takes their worship, when anybody takes their, all that they have and they, they truckload it somewhere else, or they just quit going to church altogether, which is a very common thing that's happening now, they just give up on the church in toto. We all suffer. We all hold the bag for that. Um, and it's something that we should take seriously. So, so we are connected, whether you like it or not, we, we just are. And when you're not doing well, and when you don't keep your promises, we all suffer. It's true in marriage, is it not? It's true as parents, right? Think about how you as a child, one of the greatest things that probably caused you suffering was when your parents wouldn't keep their promises. And so why would you think if it hurt you that it's not going to hurt your kids? For those of us, <coughs> for those of you who are college students, right? We've talked about this and joked about it. You have commitment issues. You have commitment issues at every level. One, primarily, and Christians in particular, because you overcommit. Like you're going to 17 Bible studies, and, and you, you just want to do everything. The world is an oyster. You're friends with everybody, and suddenly there's a paper due, and suddenly there's this relational explosion, and there's drama, and you don't have the energy left to do anything. And I get it. That's, that's life, too, by the way. It doesn't stop just because you're, you graduate from college. It's, it's all of us. We're, we're horrifically overcommitted as, as a culture. And so we all struggle to keep our promises, but you have to understand that the not keeping of the promise has a ripple effect on someone else. And how do you treat folks who don't keep their promises? Do you keep calling on them? Do you keep giving them opportunities to not keep their promises and prove to you yet again? Or do you move on? Right? I move on. I'm, I, I don't know about y'all, and, and I always grieve it, and I always wrestle with it, and, and, you know, but it's tough. It's just tough, but here's some good news. Does God give up on us because we don't keep all of our promises? Is, is his mercy truly new every single morning? Is he truly good to us, as we sang? Now, does that mean we shouldn't try to keep our promises? No, because it does have a ripple effect. But what it does tell us is you, you can try and fail and still get back up again and amen. It is not the end of the story. So for those of you who are wrestling with, and I know some of you do, I do, with the promises that you haven't kept, where you just feel crippled by them, know this. 
The Lord, your God, is the promise keeper. He doesn't need yours. So even in your failings, he still loves you. And the breath in your lungs is evidence of his faithfulness and his keeping of his promise to sustain his people. And you have the gift of the Spirit to help you to set things to right where it's possible to set them to right. You have the finished work of Christ to not let that failing dictate who you are and who you will be. Amen? So it's good to know that our God is not a murderous king who has troublesome dreams, who comes to us and says, all right, who of you can quote Obadiah? And the one who cannot, I'm going to kill you all. <laughs> right? That's not what he does. So when we go to be before the Lord our God, what we will hear because of the finished work of Christ is, come in, my son, my daughter. Right? That's not to say that he's pleased with our bad behavior. He's not some granddaddy. It's like, oh, shucks, you kids, at it again. No, it grieves the Spirit, and it should grieve us as church. But he's not like Nebuchadnezzar. He's not like us and how we deal with people who don't keep their promises. Let's turn back to the text and see where the story goes. As Daniel and his friends are being sought to be destroyed, what we find is a praying prophet and the revealing God. Picking it up in verse 14. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested an appointment with the king that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision in the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might. And have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles. From Judah, a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery 
that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in the bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and you may know the thoughts of your mind. And notice Daniel is being faced with death. Arioch has come to kill him and his friends. He's not there to have a conversation. So you've got to understand even the risk that Daniel was taking in trying to speak up in the first place as an exile. So he says to Arioch, whoa, 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 what's going on? He doesn't even, he doesn't even know what's happening. So as evidence again of the Lord's favor, Arioch could have easily said, boy, I'm not here to talk. I'm not here to talk to some 17, 18-year-old punk. I'm here to kill folks. But instead, Arioch took the time to tell him what was going on and to listen to what he had to say. And so Daniel does what? He immediately says, listen, I, I'm 10 times better than all them fools. In fact, y'all should probably go ahead and wipe them out first while I'm giving the interpretation because they ain't worth nothing. And I'm the man now. Is that what he does? Is that what I just read? No, it's not what he does at all. In fact, he says, hang on, let me make an appointment and then let us go to the Lord in prayer. He immediately rushes to his, his own home where his friends are and he says, cry out to the Lord for mercy that he would make known to us so that we would not be destroyed. What's interesting is how that prayer is also for his enemies. If you noticed in there, it says that not only was he preserved, but all of the enchanters, all the other failed pagans. He had an opportunity if he wanted to, to say to the king, they were a waste of your time. In fact, let's clean this matter up. Do away with them as you originally intended because they're worthless to you. I am what you need. He could have parlayed his wisdom, his gift into something that would be of some sort of commercial value, right? But that's not what he does. Notice what he does after he asks his friends to pray, which, by the way, is very instructive for us. Like, what do you do when you are faced immediately with a circumstance? I am shocked at the number of times that when people gather together and we say, hey, is there anything we can be praying for you for? They're like, no, probably not. Really? You live in a fallen world. You're some mix of saint sinner, and God can't do nothing for you today? Now, there's something that's wrong there, isn't there? Right? And we got to tease that out. Is it that we're arrogant? Oh, man, I don't need God. What God has offered, man, I got this. I don't know. I really don't believe it's that, actually. Having spent time with so many of you, I just think it's, we're so out of practice. It is not within our purview to even think about the need to be prayed for because we're so caught up in the tyranny of the urgent. We're so caught up in stuff that we don't think about how God is good to us and longs to give his children good gifts. And he longs to preserve us. So we don't even know how to ask for what is good, which should not cripple you, but cause you this Lord's Day Sabbath to consider and remember how good God has been, who was, how good God is being, who is and how good God will be 
who is to come. So from asking them to pray, it's answered that night. He's given a vision of what the king dreamed. And so notice also what he does. His life is hanging in the balance. Does he rush immediately to the king? Or what does he do? He takes time to worship. He pauses and he prays. And I want to challenge you either to use this psalm prayer that Daniel has given us in uh, in Daniel chapter 2. Use it today with you and your family. Just walk through it and talk about and, and give remembrance of how God has actually been these things in your life. Each of these things. How blessed be the name of God forever and ever for whom belong wisdom and might. How has the Lord this week given you wisdom? How has the Lord this week given you strength? Or sometime over the last month. Take time with you and your friends or your family on this Lord's Day to really remember. Use this psalm or meditate on it all week. It's a wonderful psalm and very instructive to us as to what, what is Daniel's foundation. What allows this teenage boy, not yet a man, this teenage boy, to suffer in exile and do the things that he's doing in faithfulness. This, he's telling us this here as he, as he gives us an explication of who God is to him. And he says, he recognizes God's sovereignty. He says, you change the times and the seasons. You take kings away and you set kings up. So Nebuchadnezzar is no different. I don't need to fear him. Because you've got to understand, once the interpretation was made known to Daniel, and, and we're going to read it here in just a bit, does it end well for Nebuchadnezzar? Uh-uh, his kingdom's going to fall. Now, would you want to be the guy to tell the murderous king who already told, I'll wipe out every wise man because you fools standing in front of me couldn't tell me what the dream is. So you want to go and tell him, hey, I just want to let you know this is going to end probably poorly for you. <sighs> you got to understand that would have been, that'd be tough. We would wrestle with that. We wouldn't be praying this kind of prayer. We'd be, we would be begging God to save us because our head's fixing to be on the block. So take time, really take time to walk through this prayer. And it'll, it'll help also too, as we go through Daniel, to go back to it and to remember it. This is Daniel's theology. This is his firm foundation. And we don't have the time to do it here this morning, but, but I, I think it's much, it'll be much better for you to do it in a very personal way. And so he takes time to pray, and then he goes and he says, all right, I need to go talk to the king. I've talked to my king. I've prayed. The Lord has been good. I have worshiped. And now with confidence, I can stand before the man who has threatened to kill us all. And notice he even says, don't kill the wise men. He even, he even calls for the king to not kill any of those who essentially are his enemies. That is powerful because they're not going to offer him the same thing as we see later in the book of Daniel. They will not be so kind to him. And he says, he says to, 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 he makes it clear to the king. In fact, notice he repeats exactly what the wise men said that made the king mad in the first place. Remember what they said? No man on earth can do what you've asked. You've asked the impossible. Only the gods can do it, and they don't dwell here, so we're in trouble. Daniel said it different, though. He says, no man can do what you've asked, king. But there is a God in heaven who can and who will, and who has. 
He goes on to say, this isn't, I've not been chosen because of my wisdom. Notice the beauty of the humility of Daniel here. An opportunity he could have set himself apart. He could have taken and run with it, just like what we would expect anybody uh, in, in any sort of sports. We love the arrogant. We also love it when the arrogant fall. We love the arrogant in politics. We love the arrogant in terms of corporate settings. We love the arrogant in all sorts of places. And yet remember, remember, what is the antithesis to faith from the book of Habakkuk? It's doubt, right? No, it is not doubt. It's arrogance. The antithesis to faith is arrogance. So humility is one of the greatest evidences of your faith. If you lack humility, more than likely you lack faith. Now let's be clear on something. Humility is not just a bunch of Gomer Pyle all shucksness. For those of you who know Gomer Pyle is, I probably just like cut off 30, 40, 50% of the audience. Old show, he was like, golly. All right, so <laughs> I don't know why I remember that. But it's not just that. Do you understand how much humility it takes to tell someone the truth when they are perishing? And you know that it's going to potentially ruin your relationship with them. That takes humility and faith in the God who loves us, who promised that he would hold all things together, to step forward and say, I love you, but you are ruining your marriage with this insanity. I love you, but your passive aggressiveness is wearisome. I love you, but you are drifting away. Come back. That takes humility. A lot of times we think because you say stuff strong without question marks and rainbows and butterflies, that that's not humility. I disagree. Now I may disagree because I'm not the guy who speaks in rainbows and butterflies. But I think it's a, it's, 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 we've encultured humility in a way that's devastating to us. But Daniel shows a beautiful, beautiful example of humility in saying, this is not from me, this is from the Lord. Listen to what Brian Chappell says about this passage. He says, Daniel had the same options that we have in any given crisis. He could have resorted to his intelligence, his power, his resources, but instead he turned to his God. Daniel chose prayer as his first response. What is yours? What is your first response whenever there's a difficult circumstance? And how is your current devotional and prayer and worship practices setting you up for when a difficult circumstance comes that that would in fact be your response? You need to understand this. What you're doing today from a devotional and prayer perspective is dictating how you will do those things in the future. Whenever you find out that you have cancer or whenever you find out that your spouse is leaving or whenever you find out that your child has gone truly and deeply prodigal and you had no idea. What you're doing today is dictating what you will do in the future. So if you only want to wait till a time of crisis, it won't be there for you. Not like you'll need it. Let's turn back to the text. Verses 31 through 49, here Daniel will give him the vision. He says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. 
The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, the middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now, just want to pause for a second. Two things. Notice this image is of a man, man's kingdoms, and notice it's getting weaker as it moves down. That's very important. He goes on to say, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you the king, its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds, the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Let me pause for just a second. Notice the Genesis 1 language here. He makes it very clear to Nebuchadnezzar, you are not king because you chose to be king. You're king because God put you there. And you were to rule in his honor and his glory. All of this is Genesis 1 mandate language. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet their kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. Now, what did he just tell Nebuchadnezzar? Your kingdom must go, and it will. It will. And then shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks the pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it, will, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Well, to this murderous king, he just said, your time is coming. And the God of my God is going to reign, and he's going to strike down kingdom after kingdom. Now, imagine if you're Daniel. What does this mean for when you're leaving exile? Never. Never in this world would Daniel leave exile. This is not a promise that he can look to and say, hey, in three weeks' time, four weeks' time, this is going to be over. No, he's telling the king, hey, this, when your, your kingdom will come to an end at some point. Now, he doesn't know exactly how long that's going to be, and Nebuchadnezzar's reign was, if I'm remembering right, about 35 or 40 years And this is early in the reign. But what he's making clear is that his God would set up a kingdom that would destroy all others. The New Testament picks up this language in Luke chapter 20. 
And, and it makes it clear that Christ is that stone that was cut by no human hands. He is the cornerstone on which men would trip and fall and be broken in pieces, either through judgment or redemption. And for us, that is good news as he points to the mountain that is coming from the stone that would grow. This mountain will fill the earth. Fill it with what? God's glory and amen. So Daniel is giving an interpretation that is true of God, but is bad news for the king who he also pointed out God had put in his place and would put him in his place. Look at how the king responds. Verse 46, the Neb king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and he paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. Something you need to recognize is Nebuchadnezzar ain't there yet. Who did he worship? Daniel. And notice that he still refers to Daniel's friends by the names he gave them. There's a reason why that shifts here. Because it's evidence that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get it yet. He's not there yet. But the hound of heaven is on his tail. And just in the same way, he's after us. Just in the same way he's after you. He, he longs for you to know that he made you. He knew who you were before you ever had a thought he fashioned you piece by piece. He has given the gifts that, he's given you the gifts he's given you. He's given you the challenges that he's given you to make you into who you are so that you could glorify him. It is important for us to remember who is in fact God and who is in fact in control and what kingdoms will rise and which ones will fall and the one that will never ever pass. Which kingdom are you a resident of? And how does your actions and behavior reflect your citizenship? And how does the coming of the eternal kingdom of God affect how you live right now and how you view earthly circumstances? Because if it doesn't affect you, if it's not having some sort of impact, you need to think about that because it should. It should grant you hope. You shouldn't be uttering statements like, well, if so-and-so gets elected, the world's going to end. As if their election, I mean, if you're going to say it, say it right. If so-and-so gets elected, the sovereign Lord of all things will put an end to the world at long last, and the kingdom will come. Yay. Should be something better. I mean, something a little more worked out than, than just hopelessness. No, we're, we're not a people of hopelessness. Why do we sound like it so often? We, of all people, should sound like the people who have the greatest hope there is for the most fallen of the most fallen. Three women came to Christ this past week at Cobb Pregnancy. It's okay, let's do it, try it. Got an email from a guy who ministers in Thailand. Uh, it was not Tim Mills, another guy. There was a, a man who was a male prostitute, sold his body for years, who came to Christ and now runs a taxi business. Yeah. Kingdom of darkness does not reign. Kingdom of darkness does not decide 
how far things should go. God does. So what does Daniel 2 teach us? That all other religions and philosophies make promises they just can't keep. They, 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 they can't keep them. Two, that we should come to God, the true promise keeper, in, in prayer when faced with difficult circumstances. We should, in humility, know where to go, of all people. And we should do it with each other. I can't tell you how many times I walk away from circumstances where I think, I should have prayed for them. Why, do I, why am I so unpracticed? And you do too, by the way. Three, earthly kingdoms will rise and fall until the coming of God's eternal kingdom in Christ. We have nothing to fear. And if you do, then your God is not the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible is not the God of fear. And that needs to be worked on from a discipleship perspective if you do wrestle in fear. To close out, listen to what Charles Simeon says. If the gates of hell have not been able to prevail against the church at large, neither shall they against the weakest member of it. If the greatest empires have yielded to the influence of the gospel, so shall also the most inveterate lusts within us. Let Christians then lift up their heads with joy. Their conflicts may be severe, but victory is assured to them by the promise and oath of an unchanging God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that that is who you are. Thank you that you've made us who we are. Thank you that you give us the opportunities, even in difficult circumstances, to serve and honor and glorify you. May we, your church, not let anything steal our hope in you from us. May we be able to give quick testimony to your goodness and your promise keeping. May we learn how to pray. May we pray for each other. May we be a church that evidences its faith by its humility and the most humble thing we can do is submit ourselves in prayer. God, help us as we take time this week to look back at Daniel's psalm that he prayed, that you would speak to us in the power of your Holy Spirit through those words. Help us to remember. Help us to grow. In Christ's name, amen.